Hello, and welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, once again, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you from the Dr. Julius Snow Institute for Archaeometallurgy here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're discussing a new analysis of the famous dagger from the tomb of King Tutankhamun. With a crystal pommel and decorated gold sheath, the dagger is a fantastic example of the metallurgical art. That would be cool enough, but the iron blade appears to have come from a meteor, that is, from outer space. What's even cooler is that this dagger seems to have been mentioned specifically in a letter from the Hittite king Tushrata to Tut's grandfather, Amenhotep III. So what is it about diplomatic gift-giving in the Late Bronze Age? Why were these mafia bosses arguing with each other about respect and dissing each other's gifts? Also, is there such a thing as a paradigm shift, and what is a cucumber of gold? Okay. So... Here's my lightning round to to you all. What was the best gift that you ever received? Oh, oh, wait! I gotta say, Alex, your your lightning round questions are really very very penetrating. They're there's very multi leveled and oh man, the best gift I ever received. God, I will I will go with the golden answer. Two healthy children. Oh, good. Oh. <laughs> okay. Can't beat that. I just okay. wanted something more, more tangible. Tangible. Right. Materialistic. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not that I'm anti-children <laughs> or anti-health or healthy children, anything like that. We're, no, we're very right. pro that here yeah. on this podcast. But I was thinking something a little more, you know. Yeah. Well, then you go next. Do you have me? Yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. I I have um I have two. Okay. One. The first one is my first bicycle. Mm. And oh, yeah. I I discovered a picture a couple months ago, which I now keep on my um, computer desktop of me riding the the bicycle at my aunt and uncle's house down the shore, and I'm like whatever six or seven or something. And there's such a, an expression of unrequited joy on my face that has never, ever been um, replicated <laughs> ever. <Wow. laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wow. say that. And, and the second gift was actually um, a kitchen knife that uh, I went away to Israel to dig at some point i came back and my wife and very 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 young son had gone to the the kitchen supply store and bought me a, a chef's knife and that was just 
so important. And, you know, I have it, of course, to this day. What happened to the bicycle? The <laughs> bicycle. Bicycle is lost to the sands of time. Yeah. But at least I have a picture to remind me. Right. right. Well, what kind of bike nice. was it? Was it probably a Schwinn? Uh-huh. Banana seat uh-huh. with the high handlebars, that kind of bike? No, but it was red. Ah, uh-huh. good. Um, I've, I've got the picture right here. I can send it to you both. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the, the limitations, the limitations of the podcast. That's, That's right. right. I keep saying we got to do a video um, podcast thing. Yeah. Okay, Doctor Hallett. All right. Um. So, so uh, a ring that I saw in the jewelry store while I was getting my watch battery changed, and it was surprise, surprisingly later bought for me by my husband as a surprise gift. So mm. I guess that was the best gift I ever got. Nice. Yeah. And the children. And the children, the healthy children. And the children. The children. <laughs> yeah. Professor okay. Professor Dessel. Oh man. There have been a lot of gifts over the years, but I'm sort of dematerializing, <laughs> both figuratively and literally. Um I will say that one of my most cherished items, objects, artifacts is a little night is a little uh, lamp that was the first gift that Adrian got me. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's for like a night table kind of thing. Oh. And nice. uh, I, yeah, and I still use it and I love it. Oh, and nice. it's very meaningful. That's good. A torch to light the way. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. Yeah. You romantic at heart. Yeah. Yeah, people think that anyway. Um, <laughs> well, make the segue. Yeah, well, it's these gifts are gifts are very important because right. gifts tell us about who we are. They tell us about who people think we are. And not simply what they think we need, <laughs> but you know, their perception of our needs and desires and aspirations and stuff like that. And it's, it's all a, a matter of a psychology, but also diplomacy. Ooh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that was a good one, right? Yeah. So they're not, so you don't think, okay, well, we should introduce the topic before. Yeah, I see. We didn't even take 20 minutes this time. No. We're kind of disappointing <laughs> in a way, but. Crazily efficient. <laughs> everybody's on the clock well but what brings us to this point so early in our first hour (laughs) is a recent analysis of a a gift a very special gift found in the in the tomb of a very special boy (laughs) the boy boy king (laughs) the boy king the boy they called tut (laughs) it was an iron an iron dagger Something that you you want to give every boy right. <laughs> at a certain age. Certainly in East Tennessee, every boy deserves <laughs> his own iron dagger. And every Egyptian boy king, I'm sure, got or at least wanted an iron dagger. But this analysis has uh, has shown apparently that 
uh, once again, that this is a dagger made of iron, which was very unusual, very special, very rare metal down there in the late second millennium BCE. And it probably came from outer space. <laughs> once again, we reach to the galaxy. That's right. To infinity and beyond. Why does it have to be outer space? Which <laughs> usually gives us problems, but not this time. Not this time. So we have this gift. Or well, well it's not, but we don't really it's not we don't know that it's a yeah, gift. Let's slow it's down like, with this whole gift thing. I feel like <laughs> really it, it's very it's a very special um thing that was in his tomb with him. Right. Old yeah. King Tut, young King yeah. Tut. Young King Tut. Uh, so it's this iron blade with a gold hilt and a rock crystal setting on the top of the pommel. And right. it's got lots of small, semi-precious stones attached to the, to the hilt. And it's got a beautiful gold sheath. It is beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, I will say that the, the, the images in the articles, in these two recent articles, are just, just really wonderful. Yeah. And it was resting on his thigh. He was buried with it. <clears throat> and the question is, from, from where does this crazy, beautiful, exotic knife come from? Right. Is it Egyptian in origin? Uh, it, does it come from the Anatolian world because of its association with iron? Is it meteoric iron? Right. And there's a, uh, there was analysis done on it uh, in the 70s, yeah. a little bit later, but all of a sudden in the, in the last 2016, so in the last six or seven years, there have been two major articles in scientific journals, and now a book that is, we've not been able to have a look at, it's forthcoming uh, on this um, the uh, metal stuff from King Tut's tomb. So we're awaiting that publication. And there's a great deal of interest right. in this iron dagger. Right. And the, uh, the, the new analyses <clears throat> were done by um, scientists going into the museum with a portable um, XRF device and basically beaming little tiny X-rays at this, at this thing as it, reposed in the lab and you know the kind of analysis that would take huge laboratories with expensive equipment you can just whip out this handheld device now and figure out exactly the atomic structure of of pretty much anything or any one yeah yeah and uh so that's a another leap forward because these devices are everywhere now on on excavations and in museums and in museums yeah they're just right? And it is interesting that you can take an artifact that was found almost exactly a hundred years ago and with these new methodologies, do new, new analyses and learn new things. Right. Because it's, it's non-destructive. So there's no downside to it. Right. And so the results are uh, interesting in that we have uh, two studies that seem to align with each other. They're very scientific. So obviously we're, a little bit <laughs> at a disadvantage, <laughs> a slight disadvantage. Right. Um, but 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 these two studies both seem to uh, clearly suggest that it's um, meteoric iron yeah. that is then fashioned in some way, and there's some 
lack of precision about the manufacturing process. That's kind of interesting. Um, and then this forthcoming book suggests that they have no way of knowing what the material is. That's one of the uh, results of the study in this, in this book, that there's no way to know what it is. Um, of course, the big issue is not just that it's meteoric iron, but that these uh, you know, iron objects, iron um, objects from before 1200 or certainly the first millennium are very rare. Yeah. Um, that iron smelting doesn't really start until at the very earliest suggestion around 1200, 1100. Um, and so anything before 1200 is sort of these unusual circumstances where a chunk of iron comes from the sky, <laughs> lands, uh, somebody dutifully picks it up and <laughs> presents it to the king, right. uh, at which point the king hands it over to his uh, manufacturers, all of his little, his own personal laboratories where they then fashion wonderful and exotic things out of it. So the issue- Right, and, the, and there are things like little beads. Right. There are yeah. things like um, little bracelets and plates and, and stuff. But this I, is this is one of the most fabulous things that was that was ever made out of iron before the Iron Age. Right. Before it became common. Um, right. And apparently, if I'm understanding it correctly, uh, because meteoric iron, it, it is rare, but you find it and it's kind of in a big chunk as opposed to iron ore, which you have to dig out and you have to separate from the rock and all sorts of stuff. And you need much higher temperatures to work it. So um, so if if before technology got to the point where you could do that easily, if they're going to work with iron, it. I guess it's, I guess it's meteoric iron is, is right. You, with so. meteoric iron, you can either simply pound it into the, into shape with brute force, right. or you can heat it so that it's a little on the softer taffy like <laughs> side right. and then pound the pound it into shape, but you're not smelting it. Right. 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 You're not crushing or and then heating it way up to like 1500 degrees centigrade to extract the the actual metal from the rock right and then right. pouring it into and, a mold and, and it, it says in these articles that that um it looks uh chemically like it was uh made in a low temperature forging um right. so so they were they were able to figure that out just by how it looked which is pretty cool Right. Though, again, this forthcoming book seems to question even that. Okay. So we all have to wait for that. But um, one of the big, one of the most interesting things that I found was the tie-in between good, good textual analysis and, you know, and the mm. scientific analysis. And that is the fact that in Amarna Letter 22 from 22. to Amenhotep III, I'm sorry, Al? Number 22. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just I'm just echoing your <laughs> yes, it's Elamorna Bingo. <laughs> um, that um, uh, Amarna Letter 22 from Tushrata to Amenhotep III mentions a uh, iron dagger uh, with you know all sorts of schmaltz on it, right? Right. Uh, gold and. Um, and uh, semi-precious stones, lapis and carnelian and malachite and things like that. Right. Um, and so the thought is, is that this dagger might be that. It might have right. been gifted. And this is, I guess, where the, where Alex, you came up with the 
lightning round question. It might have been gifted from Tishrata to Amenhotep III in celebration of Amenhotep III's daughter being married to, I mean, uh, Tishrata's daughter yes. being married to Amenhotep III. Right, right. right. So right. in other words, King Tut's uh, grandfather was Amenhotep III and right. Tushrata, the gift giver, the presumed gift giver was um, king of the empire known as the Mitanni Empire. Right. So, which opens From us here, up my to grandson, this is my favorite knife. This was given to me, given to me by your grandmother's father. <laughs> right, who lives in this strange land far, far away. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Now, right. It, it, it's probably also worthwhile to to mention at least what else is in this inventory of gifts from Tushrata. Crazy um, inventory. That letter contains so much. So much. So many. And that's where I thought I, you know, you talked about the importance and value and meaning of gifts. And at another kind of fundamental level, it seems very transactional. Because yeah. it's such a, it's like, you know, it's like you've won some kind of crazy hoard on, <laughs> on, um, on, uh, what's that? Uh, let's make a deal. Right. <laughs> like behind door number three, <laughs> the Tushrata mother load. Right. Right. So he's, he gets, and this is a list, four beautiful horses that run swiftly. <laughs> none of those, <laughs> none of those slow horses. Those, yeah. One chariot. Uh, blah 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 covered in gold um a whip covered in gold stones and shekels of gold this is covered in gold that's covered in lapis um one dagger the blade of which is iron it's guard of gold with designs it's haft of ebony with calf figurines so the the thing is in there a mace of of iron a oh, knife of bronze there's more of that description in inlay of genuine lapis. It's uh, a hummel yeah. of uh, David Shortshrift. And yeah. then five shekels of gold have been used on it. And that's, I, I found the detail, the level of detail, much more of a trans, transactional nature than of any kind of sort of, you know, um, symbolic nature. Right. right. They're really, they're really getting into such crazy detail about how much, you know, how much gold is being used, how much this is being used, that I really feel like it has to equal something commensurate to was to you know some gift that that um, Amenhotep had given to 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 Shrata or you know something. Right. Like and that's the interesting also, thing. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just to point out that it's part and parcel of what you expect for the Amarna letters, which is all about diplomatic gifts. And, uh, and, and you know, it's not just like, like you're saying, it's not just gift giving. It's, it's, it's very regimented and you, right. have it, to, you have to give these gifts, especially right. when they're exchanged for a princess um, or and, a part of the. And yeah. the level of detail is crazy. I mean, part of the princess. Part of the princess. If I was ever in charge of any of this, I wouldn't be, you know, one bread shovel of gold. Oh, five yes, you would be. Weight. I, I would just, be. You're the accountant. You're writing it all down. I know, but it, like I said, I think it's a really the level of administration, the level of, you know, yeah. of uh, of accounting is really, really quite extraordinary. Right. So, and they're very picky. So here's Amarna letter 10 from um, Bora Buryash, 
of, of Babylon. Of Babylon or Carduniash. I was going to say. I mean, I <laughs> and I quote, now, though you and I are friends, <laughs> three times have your messengers come to me and you have not sent me a single beautiful greeting gift. Yeah. Nor have I, for my part, sent you a beautiful greeting gift. Yeah. I am for I am one for whom nothing is scarce, and you are one for whom nothing is scarce. So you have these mafia bosses who are talking to one another. It's like it's more like Jeff Bezos communicating to Elon Musk and (laughs) whining and complaining and bitching and moaning about how the gifts are giving me, you know, are lousy or not worth anything. And you know, they're just they're kind of insufferable. Yeah. At a yeah, certain they, level. they also often refer back to the good old days when the gifts were much better and the gold <laughs> wasn't watered down with, right. with silver and complaining that now the gold is watered down. Right. But I want to bring our attention back to letter 22. Okay. In which one garment Hatsur style. Yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I wonder what a Hatsur style garment looks like. And that's paired with one garment hot source. So one pair of shirts. I didn't know shirts came in pairs. I thought pants, <laughs> never mind that. It was like t-shirts where you get them in a pack. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it says one pair of shirts, Hurrian style. Oh, uh, the Hurrian style. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. One pair of city shirts. That's oh, good. Button down. Right. <laughs> without a pocket on the breast. No one does that anymore. One robe and one cap of blue-purple wool. And there we get back to that blue-purple thing. Mm, that's yeah. right. Right. So I would like to know what a Hatsur-style garment is. I would, too. Yeah. I mean, we do a lots of statuary from Hatsur, so... Oh, it's true. You're right. We yeah. do have those garments. Right. So, uh, right. Yeah. So they're kind of generic-looking when you see the sculptures. Well, there must be true. something some small detail that makes them Hatsur style. Right, so now we're gonna to have to look at these statues with new eyes and look for what makes them. <laughs> right. I don't like to look at the world with new eyes. Look at these statues. <laughs> look, look for the union label <laughs> when you were buying your shirt, vest, or blouse. Um, so, um, so I thought that was nice, the coupling of the scientific analysis with this Marna letter. Yeah. Um, I also think it's very interesting to think about how this particular dagger was, you know, bequeathed from Amenhotep III down to um, Tutankhamun. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen? Um, and then the selection process. Now the selection process for burying him with this meteoric iron dagger, assuming it is meteoric iron, um, I think that's pretty easy because clearly meteoric iron is a commodity of indescribable value, right? You have to wait for this stuff to literally fall from the sky, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it is the most valuable thing in, in, in these societies. And I, but I also think about, okay, so it falls from the sky, right? Undoubtedly it, right. if, If we're to think about how our modern conception of who aliens communicate with, they never, they never, they never find city people, right? They always find people way out in the backwater. <laughs> That's right? true. So I can't imagine that this meteoric chunk of iron fell in, you know, in, in Luxor or, you know, in, <laughs> in a major, you know, city in, in uh, you know, Akhetaten or anything like that. I'm sure it fell out in the desert. And how is it that it may, made its way to the king? Right. You know, like if I found it, I'd swirl it away, wouldn't you? 
No, what I would do is I would find it and <laughs> yeah. I would, I would sort of send it, you know, I'd find my back channels and say, Hey, I think this is worth something. And I'd find somebody to sell it to a middleman probably. And then that middleman would sell it to a manufacturer who works for the King and get a lot more money than I did when I started selling it. And then this thing would be made for the King. That's how I see this happening. Very, uh -huh, very economic analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I would say I was the God smiled on me and sent me this this thing and I'm gonna hang on to it because it's you know it's hmm. from the cosmos. Right. And your kids would say, Oh yeah, that's dad's chunk of space metal. <laughs> well, you're right, you know, you're right about that. That's exactly what they would say. <laughs> Dad, you've been carrying that space metal around for 28 years. What are you gonna do with that? Ah, you know, it's good. time's gonna come. It came from the gods. <laughs> That's right. And it's mine. Yeah. But then, then after the old man dies, the kids are going to sell it. Too. Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe they <laughs> right. kill the old man to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> to sell the chunk of meteor. Right. Right. But was it really that, that valuable? Because let's go to a Marna letter 14. <laughs> Hold it. Hold it. How much? Whoa. <laughs> Whoa! What kind of crazy amount of research did you do for this? And what did I do? I got out the I got out the PDF of the book and I I searched on the word iron. Oh, did you really? And the word gift. That's what I did. Gift must appear. Um, a letter fourteen talks about a gift that weigh a, a half ton of gold and a quarter ton of silver. Man, so in a big caravan. Yeah. And wait, does it talk about iron? You just said gold and silver. It doesn't seem to talk about, <laughs> it talks about a, a cucumber of gold. <laughs> why, why are you citing this letter if it doesn't talk about iron? Uh, no, I'm just talking, I'm talking about the gold oh, oh, okay. and, the, and the quantities oh, thereof. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. And it's got all these other things that are made of gold and silver, a bed and a throne and a washing bowl and a, sure. a monkey and <laughs> and a container, but, and, you know, actual uh, mirrors and big quantities. Um, that must've been worth something. Yeah. I mean, what's, how do we do, how do we determine the relative value of, of different commodities and metals, particularly if they're, if they're finished ones coming out of, you know, Royal workshops intended for Royal consumption. But if it's a unicorn, which iron must have been, because yeah. it, its source is so specific and so, you know, erratic, <laughs> um, I would think that that would really, you know, be valued above mm -hmm. and beyond. Maybe not. That could be. That could be. And also, it's a it's a nice hard metal. I mean, it's a good it's a good thing to make a sword out of. Um, yeah. Well, they didn't make a sword. They only made a little dagger. Oh, right. dagger. Sorry, it's a good thing to make a dagger out of. Yeah. Yeah, but that also points to the, uh, as you said, the rarity and and value. And it is, and we can't we can't really understate this. It's a really nice dagger. It's a beautiful it dagger. Yeah, yeah. I, I I actually have a bone to pick with um the the gift hypothesis. Now, the fact that Amarna Letter Twenty Two has this description that really matches up absolutely, and that that um, I have no problem with that. But um, there's also this assumption in what we read that the technology uh, that maybe the Egyptians weren't up, up to the task and also not just working the metal, but the way that the gold and the lapis were attached to the gold hilt ah. was 
done with something stronger than the usual organic glue and they probably use lime plaster and that only became common in Egypt later on in the Ptolemaic period. So there's this assumption, oh, the Egyptians couldn't have managed it. Right. I didn't like that. I think that's really kind of denigrating the Egyptians prowess. And I was kind of hurt on the Egyptians part uh, about this, this sort of assumption that they couldn't have done it. Um, so, and that, that popped up in, I think, both yeah. articles. Okay, but there's no evidence for Egyptians working in iron until really the first millennium, beginning of the first millennium sometime. <clears throat> Whereas in Anatolia, the Hittites were messing around with, with iron, okay. metallic iron, um, and trying to figure out smelting and stuff hundreds of years earlier. Okay. <clears throat> so okay, the preponderance of evidence suggests that this is not an Egyptian, not of Egyptian origin. Right. And, and the adhesion also speaks to that where uh, limestone or rather uh, lime plaster ad adhesives were not part of the, an Egyptian tradition. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so the, they, so some of the scholarship points to this gift coming from the Mitanni world, North Syria, Southeastern Turkey, or Anatolia itself. Right. Right. That, and that's, that's reasonable. And yeah, all that's reasonable. And the other bone I had to pick is um, lots of chemical analysis, obviously, and the very close reading, the textual analysis that led us to Amarna Letter 22. But there was no, and you know that this is my thing, there was no stylistic analysis in any of these articles. I saw you rolling your eyes, Alex. Uh, well, well, I think that's not the purpose. I mean, I'm, uh, the question is, are there other articles on the stylistic analysis? I don't know, right. I, which, I didn't do that oh, well, there are, but these are scientists. They're not yeah, I don't think this right. is an underanalyzed area as a whole. I'd like right. to know more about the, <laughs> you know, cause it's, I, I don't know enough about Egyptian uh, weaponry to, to say if the sort of bands of gold and is it lapis uh, uh, are typical of Egyptian or not. I don't know, but I'd like to know. <laughs> All right. Our <laughs> listener has, has a task ahead of him or her. Uh, yeah. So, so now that I've noted that I'm, we can move on. Well, now, now you have me looking over my glasses at the picture on the screen. of these. Right. I was too. Uh, I mean, I think it could be Egyptian stylistically, but I don't know enough. All right. Well, I'm sure there's something published on the. There must be. That's yeah. what I should have looked up before we podcast. But the, the the main point is that it works very well with this diplomatic, right, gift hypothesis, and it's in with with the textual evidence and and the scientific evidence. It, it makes a it makes for a very neat and persuasive and economical sort of narrative. Um, and we also know in, in the broader sense that all sorts of objects, tons of gold, fancy this, fancy that, were part and parcel of international diplomacy in the second millennium um, yeah. in, the, in the ancient world. That's actually and, a really good point. So we have all these Amarna letters talking about all these gifts, and we know that the diplomatic trade went on for a couple of pharaoh's reigns and uh you would expect to find some of these gifts in 
in uh, the one royal tomb that was found unlooted. That is right. Hutt's tomb. So right, and which was- that This is all basically 14th century that yeah. we're dealing with. Right. And, and this royal tomb, which was filled with stuff that had been scooped out of other royal tombs. Right. Um, <clears throat> because the boy king died. <laughs> Suddenly. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> under mysterious circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. But well, we, we haven't talked about the ultimate royal gift, which is um, the daughter. Right. Ah. Yeah. And... Um, this wasn't a, the only daughter. I mean, in general. In general, yeah, in general, and that's which always struck me as someone with a daughter um, <laughs> as kind of strange practice. Take my daughter, please. I don't think it's strange. Well, and, I don't think and the security be. between our two houses will yeah. be. We they will they will be joined as one. Yeah, but Europe, Europe did that into the 20th century. Absolutely. I was just going to yeah, say. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I, I, I acknowledge it, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying that, you know, out, out here in the suburbs that we don't, we don't usually think about. Right. About but that's that. because you're not a king, you know. If you I were mean, a king, I think it would be different. Yeah. yeah you know, rub, it, rub it in. <laughs> I, I think, you know, royal mentalities work in a whole different way. Yeah. That's true, and but it but it's also like associative sorting today that people of the same social class tend to marry each other, which right. reinforces, <clears throat> you know, uh, oligarchies as as they exist. So you know, the house of Ferrari will marry the house of Lamborghini, right? Kind of thing. But even the schleppy patriarchs in the Hebrew Bible are you know marrying marrying relatives far afield and these you know they marry somebody and they scoop them up and they take them they take them from you know Quran or wherever down down to yeah. Canaan and yeah. and that must have been a scary jump for those for those child brides because Absolutely. all of a sudden they wake up in a totally different you know place right in every right. possible way and this way at least they know they're going to be a queen in Egypt I mean they'll right exactly and again, the, right but. and the elite culture of all of these um, kingdoms and empires are probably more alike to each other than they were to the lower classes in their own in their own country. Right. So well, everything everything was made of gold, apparently. <laughs> so you know, there's a certain recognition that goes on there, right? Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I always one always wondered if you know if we told one of our daughters <laughs> we're marrying you to this. To to prince to a prince in a far off land, they would just look at us like, yeah, well, yeah, but they hadn't been our daughters haven't been trained since birth to know that this is going to be their their future. No, well, no, I understand that. Yeah, okay, I wasn't sure that you did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about this other thing? This hieroglyphic that dates to the 13th century BCE, combining iron and sky. Iron oh, of the yeah. sky. Oh. I thought that was also a very oh that was pretty nifty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that's was a true. nice little part of this whole analysis. <clears throat> that yes. all of a sudden it's it's a little bit later than the date of the uh artifacts that we're talking about, but um it's roughly the same time period, certainly sort of the new kingdom. And all of a sudden we now have a hieroglyphic uh combining iron and sky. And that's really nice because it's clear they know where this stuff comes comes from. Right. And I guess it's it's 
it's not common, but it's well known enough to, you know, deserve its own little, its own little, uh, um, glyph glyph. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, that was, that was very cool. That kind of ties the whole thing up in a nice package in terms of where this might be. (laughs) Right. And people say that these things don't come with labels. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Hmm. It's, um, yeah, it, <clears throat> but, but how do we go from here to um, the, the Iron Age, where iron is the predominant um, metal, uh, no, utilitarian metal? It goes from being a fancy schmancy metal um, to being a utilitarian metal. Is, that, is, is the development of, of iron metallurgy on an independent trajectory? Like guys in the desert going, yeah, this, we know this is going to work. This is going to be much better. Um, Or are they being forced to it because one day, you know, the trade system breaks down and they can't get copper from, from, uh, from Cyprus anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. Or is it just, you know, the technology, you know, metal metallurgy as a technology has been around for a long time. Yeah. And as right. And as they gain more, you know, more uh, knowledge and skill, uh, they begin to expand outside of outside of just copper. <clears throat> yeah, and, and, and they uh, learn to build a better furnace, something that can get hotter. And once they do that, they have a whole range of things that they can that they can do. And pretty soon, they're building desert kingdoms and making enough money that they can order purple purple garments from right. from but, from the Mediterranean zones. Right, but that's <clears throat> it's not a. Um, it's there's no paradigm shift. It's just an elaboration on the given uh, current paradigm. They're just using a different metal in the same. Well, it's just different people finding it using a different metal, but all within the same kind of socioeconomic landscape. Okay. You know, the, the thing that they desire is wealth, kingdoms. The kingdoms okay. are modeled on you know whether it's pastoral kingdoms or you know, purely land-based kingdoms, you know, it's all the same stuff, right? It's right, not the right, shifting right. of, uh, it's not the first iteration of metallurgy, right? The, yeah. you know, the discovery of, of, uh, of bronze and the uh, elaboration of, you know, metal as yeah. a material. It's not a paradigm shift from, uh, you know, from, non-urban societies to urban societies uh right but if you took a if you took a bronze age person let's say you took a bronze age egyptian Mm -hmm. and and you you shove shove them into the iron age 500 years or something later Mm -hmm. and and you told them we've got all these iron tools they'd be freaked out because yes because that that stuff belongs to the king it's Uh it's comes from the sky <laughs> we must take this to the palace it's like oh yeah we just make this stuff it's cool mm. and, but and again it hasn't changed society i mean yes yeah they'll be they would be surprised they'd they be would surprised also be surprised at seeing a camel a domesticated camel <laughs> they might right? be more surprised at seeing the camel right like what the hell is that like i yeah. saw i heard about that but <laughs> right you know right and 
and they might also be surprised at where are all the elephants and hippopotami? What have you done with all of them? <laughs> <laughs> where did they all go? Oh, oh, you killed them all? Nice going. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's, it's a very interesting question actually of how individuals would be surprised in a time shift scenario versus yeah. the change, actual changes and paradigm shifts within the societies. And I don't see a paradigm shift but I think right. the individual will always note kinds of, you know, changes, surprises. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that, that time shifted individual would say, oh, you, you, you guys still have gold, right? And they're like, oh, yeah. We have, oh, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, then we're cool. You know? right. right. That I understand. Yeah. That's kind of a constant. Right. You know. Right. And if, and if they had been transported to Arad in the, in the 10th or 9th century, you know, they'd end up getting high and thinking, whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 what is this? So, we, you know, we could have been doing this all along. Yeah, really. With this weed that grows by the, by the road. <laughs> and and oh, you they know, probably were, but. Um, right. And then conversely, you know, someone from Megiddo in the 14th century, if they're transported to Jerusalem in the 7th century, they might say, where's all the vanilla? <laughs> what gives man no more no more vanilla you gotta be crazy man that's the best thing about the 14th century right so I, I think i think at the individual level we'll always be surprised mm. but at the structural social level there were very little surprises right and everything everything kind of flowed everything yeah. kind of flowed and then it kind of petered out and then you had all of these big imperial formations take over this part of the world. Right. But in a technological sense, it's just one technology replacing another technology. Building a better mousetrap. Right. That's true. But, but when, do you, when do you have real technological jumps that are discontinuous, that, that really do represent quantum leaps or you know, social freakout moments? Paradigm shifts. <laughs> I like social freakout <laughs> moments. <That's the> <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. Social freakout. Are you gonna so SFM or SFOM? Uh, SFM moments, which which can be said more easily. So I think SFMs. SFMs. Okay. SFMs. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. <laughs> I've completely forgotten what I was gonna say. <laughs> Oh, 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 in terms of, well, paradigm shifts slash social freakout moments, um, you know, so this age of internationalism, this Amarna period in which this letter comes from, and uh, Tutankhamen is right after that, everything ends in disaster at the end of the late Bronze Age. Well, not everything. No, no. Oh, come on. For it, 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 it ends badly for a few palaces. Yeah, and yeah. there's lots of opportunity opening up. It ends up. when kingdoms that have been around for a couple of hundred years collapse. Are we going to have to invite oh. our friend and colleague Eric Klein and have a whole <laughs> big, have a big joust, have a big roustabout? I, um, I think when I, I, I think when all of these places collapsed, yeah. Yeah. half the people went, oh, 
finally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and half the people went, wow, what are we going to do? Right. Well, I mean, those people. That's, that's <clears throat> okay, but that depends, you know, where you are in the social I'm, continuum. I don't know if I'm Egyptian royalty, perhaps even minor royalty. And I, my family yeah, is You always want to be royalty, don't you? Yeah. Well, yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and everything... Why even bring up minor royalty? I mean, if you're going to be royalty, be royalty. Don't be minor royalty. I can't imagine right. myself as, as major royalty. Right. How many people, when they talk about their past lives, ever were ever just like mud farmers? No, no, I was an Egyptian princess. Oh, exactly. <laughs> well, we happen to know one person who at least was just a regular foot soldier in Genghis Khan's army. Well, that's true. We do. <laughs> We should invite him not, on. Not foot soldier, cavalry person. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah let me get that right. Um, I was thinking more in terms of, look, I think we have a paradigm shift right now because gasoline is more than five dollars a gallon all of a sudden. And it's not a paradigm that's shift. Not a paradigm I shift. think it's, a, it's, it's a sign, a sign of a paradigm shift. Everything that uh, was kind of known economically is is no, but, but gas was four dollars no. a gallon, like five or like seven years ago. You know what? You, you know what a big paradigm shift is. Mm -hmm. um, the period from, let's say, nineteen seventy-five to nineteen eighty-five, when the personal computer mm -hmm. became a thing. Okay. And Bell bottoms went out of style. <laughs> right. That was the the two are intimately connected <laughs> in ways that have never before been revealed and in our second hour <laughs> um yeah, yeah that's a very good point actually. and the whole in that whole internet thing that the kids are talking about so much these days right right that's and kind of a paradigm shift yeah and social media is obviously going to be a paradigm shift okay. yeah. leading to this the complete is, yeah. total ruination of planet earth right okay these are better th than five dollars a gallon you're right um but but paradigm shift nonetheless and uh I think the end of the late Bronze Age and the end, or more specifically, the end of the Amarna period of internationalism and diplomatic getting alongness uh, is. Uh... <laughs> Elites always get along. Elites always get along with each other. That's that's, except when they're at war with each other. Right. And then no, but, that's... but even when they're at war, they're getting along because they make so much money off of it. Oh, my God. A lot God. of people die oh. and might, might not be happy with their governments. They don't care. Elites don't until care they get, until they get removed. Um, they don't ever think they have such hubris and narcissism. They never think they're going to be removed. Well, Nicholas II was shocked and, and couldn't believe when he was carted off to Ekaterinburg. I mean, right. he was stunned okay. with that development. Okay. You know. um, all right. I still, I <clears throat> will still stick to my guns though and say that uh, the end of the this period of internationalism or the end of what we know about this period of internationalism uh, probably did change the paradigm, unless it just kind of petered out gradually. We don't know because we well, don't have that, funds. That, that's a, I, I think that's a better way of looking at it is, is the, the speed of paradigm changes, which is then, <clears throat> you know, mentally processed and socially processed. Um, yeah. Because if you're, if your site, you know, burns down or is attacked, then that's, then that's one thing. If you're, if your sources of ebony dry up over a period of a decade, that's another thing. Um, 
And if, if you don't, and if you no longer have to pay taxes to a central government or or a city state, that's quite another king, thing. And you can just go along your own merry way and start making a little bit of autonomous decisions. That's yet another thing. Right. And and the one thing that's never been done, and we really can't do in anything but real speculative way, is know where the majority of you know people, what kind of space, social space they were living in. Right. We it's don't true. know how many elite and how many indentured you know servants and peasants and how many you know sort of middle class kulaks farmers whatever you want to call them are right. floating around right oh that's all fair and one thing that's kind of nice about the transition into the iron age is you have this the whole power vacuum idea where you know the little kingdoms suddenly get big they have their moment in the sun yeah exactly yeah, but even suddenly it's a period of decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not, you know what's sudden? Pompeii is sudden. <laughs> yes, okay. An asteroid yeah. hitting mm-hmm. you, that's, that's sudden. Right. Yeah. Um, but right. even, like, even like the Assyrian conquest of wherever you are, that's not sudden. Yeah, right. it's the whole boiling a lobster routine. Yeah, you don't, you don't know you're being boiled to death. Because if you're a if you're a dirt farmer, okay, you know it may be a surprise that the Assyrian army comes over the hill one day. Right. But if you're an elite, you're going to see this coming. It may be by only by a week or a month, or it may be as a result of your own failure to give you know, really good greeting gifts, and right. you know. Six months, a year, two years, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I guess what what hit me as we're talking is um, that you know the Amarna archive is this sort of slice of time that it's letters from coming incoming letters from uh, the reign of three kings that was you know found by chance in an archive. But we don't know actually that the letters didn't continue for a couple of kings afterwards. So um, yeah, the. Yeah, the Amarna letters are are definitely that slice, that kind of a, a, a slice. And, and it's a and it, it's a m- misleading one by virtue of that, because we are <clears throat> we're we're emphasizing you know the gold covered ebony thrones and all the demands for for gifts and the complaints about you know uh, the princess you're supposed to send me a princess and all this kind of highfalutin. Yeah. Royal stuff, which is interesting, but that's not the, it's only part of the substance of everyday diplomacy. And we certainly know from this period and the preceding period and the following period, especially this following period, that there's a lot of very basic geostrategic stuff that they probably were writing back and forth about. Where Ramses the third, the second, or is going to go is saying, "All right, that's it. <laughs> I'm going to come in. I'm going to beat the crap out of you, yeah. Yeah. Hittite king, or you know, whatever." Um, or alternatively, you know, maybe just thinking, oh, "I'm going to go up. I'm going to head north and see exactly what the situation is." Right. And what uh, you know, are are all these reports accurate? Right. Oh. Mm-hmm. Where let the chips fall where they may. 
right, right. I think it's a little bit more deliberate than that, though. I think it's more like I'm going to patrol these lands because they're my lands, and if anyone says they're not, I'm going to I'm going to right warhorse. Right. Well, that's that's because you know, in the late Bronze Age, foreign policy was basically getting gifts, complaining a lot, and then going to war. Yeah. <laughs> right. Though going though they didn't go to war that frequently. There were lots of there were lots of punitive expeditions punitive expeditions yeah. and ensuring that your empire imperial was, policing yeah exactly yeah. right it yeah. wasn't but it wasn't really war i mean you had the wars in order to gain the territories earlier in the new kingdom um well that's a that's a question how how much warfare was really necessary to go right. um take over you know a bunch of canaanite canaanite I cities almost the first did a good job and so did he said he did third. And what he said he did, but maybe he just like appeared one day outside yeah. the city and said, "Okay, here's here's the situation you find yourself in now." Right, and they ponied up, and he left, and he left. They did that until Moses the third. Okay, um, and and then it was a lot of policing. I think. Right. Yeah, I think you're right about the policing. Yeah. I mean, certainly the Amarna letters tell us, if nothing else, that these Canaanite uh, mayors. We're asking for very small numbers of, of archers and you know right. warriors yeah. to defeat to attack their their, uh, their their rivals their rivals yeah. yeah so that was really small scale I mean you know if six archers could you know help you defeat Labayu mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. <laughs> what would a Navy SEAL team do I mean that would allow you to take <laughs> over the entire Southern Levant. Don't you think it was more than six archers? Don't you think it was like a whole troop of archers? Why wouldn't they ask for a troop? Why wouldn't well, they, they, why wouldn't they think big? Why are they they're just big? modest? Yeah, maybe. Like, I don't want to. I don't like to ask. <laughs> oh, yeah, just send me I six. Just send me troops. Send me troops. <clears> no, but uh, there there are references where it says like six or ten. Yeah, and, small amounts. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's a whole different. Yeah. We, <laughs> as opposed to well, this discussion well, we started out very focused right. we, <laughs> we, really, we really became very diffuse yeah yeah all right well well and that's what happens when you don't send the greeting gifts exactly everything just goes off the rails right let alone a thank you note <laughs> right. that's, i was just thinking that you know it's no different than you know you have to send wedding presents you have to send bar mitzvah presents or you're kind of shunned in your community so it's all similar situation right and what what is the going rate for whatever and here's the registry uh oh no we don't have a registry just send money how am i supposed to know what's the relative what's the relative you know uh, regime of of values at work here that's what being part of a community is about you figure it out and that's what the mrna letters and these things like this dagger tell us that the they're part of a community that cares. <laughs> they, they send these gifts, they send these notes because they care and they want to keep their community together. That's my final word. That's a very we can criticize them, but really we're in no position because we're just the same. Well, that's true. No okay. paradigm shifts since the, since the second millennium. Exactly. Okay. Any other final words? I think that was a good final word. (laughs) Well, that was a social freakout moment if I've ever heard one. So we'd like to thank Erez Dessel for our theme music. Look for him performing in the Chicago area. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, 
the Beaver Falls Cutlery Company of Beaver Falls, New York, maker of the largest fork and knife in the world. See it on display at the Centennial Exhibition of Philadelphia. To get in touch, leave us a comment or send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East, it's all one word, at gmail.com or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.